My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. Okay. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Hello, Andy. Thank you for having me here. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. Um, you know, one of the identities I carry is a really big uh, speculative fiction, like fantasy and science fiction. Just like I, when I was a, a, a young, a, a teenager, an adolescent, I'm an only child. I spent a lot of time by myself while my parents worked and I had books to keep me company. And in retrospect, a lot of those books were pretty terrible, <laughs> but they're, but they, lo- I love them nonetheless, if they had dragons or if they had, you know, spaceships. And, and, and occasionally I was exposed just by good fortune to some really wonderful, uh, speculative fiction literature that, I, that I still like that lives in me as a, bi- a big part of who I am. And it wasn't until recently, thanks to a friend of ours, to Ken Liu, who said like, have have you checked out Kate's work? And I said, well, I know it's out there, but no, I haven't. And he said, okay, one, you need to read some Kate's work. And two, you need to talk to her in the Wonder Dome. So I'm like super, the sci-fi speculative fiction nerd in me is like really excited to be here with you today. Oh, thank you so much. And I just have to give a shout out to Ken, who is great and uh, a genius, I swear. Yes. That man. Yeah. Um, and anyone listening to this, just start with the grace of Kings. If you like, huge epic fantasy that really deals with cultural change mm. across mm. time it's both mm. on every on every level it's just it's brilliant i just finished the fourth book mm. on an advanced copy it's just oh, okay and now i'm jealous nails but... the ending of the whole thing <laughs> oh it's incredible um yeah i'm a huge admirer of ken what a yeah that is one of the most remarkable and ambitious pieces of fantasy that that yes. i've ever read yeah absolutely well, thanks to Ken. We'll let like Ken has made this this conversation possible. So whatever is great about this, we can we can give credit to Ken, and whatever goes wrong, we can also blame Ken. So that... absolutely, <laughs> and he knows, and he knows that's what'll happen. <laughs> um, Kate, I I think I want to start with what I hinted at before we started recording, which is so I've had a chance to read a what it what turns out to be just a small sliver of. Mm-hmm. Uh, an incredibly large body of work that you have produced over the years. And, and that is a short story called, um, I forget the exact title of like, like I'm a handsome man, uh, Apollo about Apollo Crow. Who's this really, I am a handsome man, said Apollo. I am a handsome man, said Apollo Crow. Right. Like beautiful. And then Unconquerable Sun, which I think is your most recent novel, or maybe Servant Mage is your most, most recent, but I read Unconquerable Sun and Servant Mage in the run up to this conversation. And, Really enjoyed all of them. They're all so different. The flavors and textures of each one are so different. But the thing I, I like started to get to notice, and maybe this is because I was reading them so close together, 
mm -hmm. uh, is that that you seem to love to play with characters who are far more than they appear upon first encounter. So Apollo Crow, for instance, is you know arguably handsome, but 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 pretty uh, unarguably not a man, or at least not as as yeah. most of us would think of a man. So that statement, "I am a handsome man," is is just flat out lie. <laughs> yes, and that plays part. into the story. Yes, of course. beautifully. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and Sun is this sort of unconquerable Sun. Sun, the main character of that novel, is is you know sort of a gender swapped Alexander the Great character, like incredibly powerful leader. Who uh, there are many scenes in the book where you describe her as being the the most unassuming of her her group of companions. You know the sort of way in which you might look at at her at first glance if you passed her in the streets on some distant planet and not realize that she was you know fated to be the the emperor of the realms and and even in servant mage that like everyone seems to think they know where the main character's alliances sit and uh and you yeah. in the end you wonderfully subvert that so i wonder does that feel true to you as like this this way in which you like to play with characters who are much more than than they might seem on the surface i have to tell you i have never heard that comment about my work before. And hmm. now I'm incredibly intrigued to think about what it means. Um, and I won't, and I won't stop myself now and think back through everything. But I think as a writer, what I really want is for readers to put the pieces together hmm. as, as they're reading. And I don't want to kind of tell them what's happening. I want mm. them to draw their own conclusions. Um, mm. And it, it means that sometimes I, I tend to be a slow builder. I mean, so, you know, the build starts slow. I don't tell you in the first page with a few exceptions um, in, in a few stories. Um, I don't tell you on the first page what the conflict is and what the absolute crux of the story is because I want it to unfold and mm. I want people to kind of build. I want, I want people to get to know the world and what is going on the same way we do mm. when, as we live, mm. because mm. we don't come into the room or we come into the room with our prejudices and our expectations, right. And what we think we know and what we don't know. I always feel like I always want to quote Donald Rumsfeld here, the known knowns and the unknown <laughs> knowns. I, One of the um, masters of speculative fiction, Donald Rumsfeld. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We build our own reality, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and to me, a book, a world, especially in speculative fiction, it's true for any kind of literature, in my opinion. Mm. Um, because even something set in our world, right? The writer is still building a specific angle on that world, a specific framework for that world. Mm. But in speculative fiction, especially mm. as a reader enters it, they can, they can only know what I've put on the page, but they're also going to draw their own conclusions about what I've put on the page. Cause they're going to bring their own relationship to it. Yeah. So I don't know if this really answers that your question. I don't know that it's a deliberate um, framework that I'm creating with characters, but what I'm asking for, or what I'm hoping for with readers is that they'll build a relationship with the world mm. and they'll build a relationship that makes them want to continue reading and to get to know the characters and to get to know the world. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Well, you know, as you say that, I'm realizing that that like that theme I noticed on the level of the characters also feels true on the level of the books, which is to say that um, you know, if you if if anyone is read in the sort of fantasy or speculative fiction space, this the the sci-fi space, there are all of these tropes that are just yeah. you know we've just accumulated. Um, and and in a, and so you can like someone who's read a lot has a lot of shorthand. You know, you can with a sentence or with a word or an idea, you can communicate this whole kind of scope of a galaxy or of of a world or a universe. And and you seem to very be very conscious of that, and then uh, really have fun subverting that. Like I think Servant Mage is maybe the sort of most potent example of what I read. It's a short, sweet book that 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 starts off in a way my read of it is like okay cool i'm entering this fantasy world with this with this mage felian who you know the kind of chosen the chosen one story the from rags to riches this kind of the tropes and then and then without giving away any of the details like she arrives at um at a way that sort of i experience as, as sort of stepping outside of some of those tropes and looking at the world's that can feel two-dimensional, can feel kind of like a, a fantasy trope and seeing it for its sort of political complexity and and the mm. ways in which both the quote-unquote heroes and the villains are working with moral points of view that aren't hers and that she doesn't want to own yeah. and that there's something else there to, to get connected to. So that both the character is more than she seems and the book is more than it seems because you're like, oh, there's a, a, a dragon and a, and a wizard. Like, I know what I'm about to get into. And it's like, uh, not not quite, actually. So, yeah, I would say I do a lot of that with my writing. And I would say I've always done it. Mm. That I, I mean, mm. I love tropes. Mm. I think they're powerful. Um, and I would never, I would never say people shouldn't write in tropes. Because the fact is, as I think most artists, most writers are working within tropes, whether or not they admit it. Yeah, and a yeah. lot of times... Yeah. Not admitting it is just a way of saying, I think this isn't a trope because I consider it important and I don't want to consider what you're doing important, right? Mm. It's a form Mm. of kind of like Mm. diminishing what someone else is doing. So I love working with tropes, but I think that working with tropes means that you have a chance to tell a different story or to re-examine the trope or to turn it sideways or to open Mm. a different window Mm. into Mm. it, to criticize it, to build on it. There's so much you can do with that if you don't just use it uncritically or just use it without ever examining the assumption you brought to it. Mm. I mean, and that really, I do think when I look back that that is really the one of the core elements of my work. But as you say, it means that the, the reader has to enter because I have to set up I have to set up the expectation. This is the trope I'm going to use. This mm. is the familiar pattern that you have seen before. Mm. And then I have to like bring him in that way. Mm. That's kind of, I, I often do that. I kind of bring them in with here. Let's walk on this path. It looks like the path mm. you've walked on mm. before. Mm. Mm. And then I want to suddenly going to, it, it's like, I may stay on that same path, but suddenly the garden starts growing differently or suddenly we take uh we go off on a side path and go down into a forest i mean it's like however i love that we can say that right but i want people to come along with me at first um thinking they know Mm. but then they don't know Mm. Mm. and Mm. that's my goal i think because i think of my work 
you know, each as each writer is going to come at writing from a different place with different goals. And I think a lot of my work is in conversation with what I read as a child mm. and what I, and, and with the, the patterns that are continuing in the field. My dad was a history teacher. And so I think I was deeply influenced by him looking at the past and knowing the past and how it influences the present and how it might influence the future. So I think that's kind of hmm. always the angle I'm working from. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, I want, I want, I, I'm, you know, I want to talk about what I think the field is and what it was, what it could be, what I hope for it. Right. Yeah. yeah. What, and, and maybe we can explore that a bit. Um, I am personally really passionate about and a believer in, I don't, I don't want this to sound too grandiose. I'm a part of me is going like, this sounds too grandiose, but, but no, I'll try, go for it. Go I'll for try it. it out. Yeah. I'll try it out. Like, like, here's what, here's what I think I want to say. There's this sort of classic, like, and you were hinting at this, but there's this classic way in which like, there's literary fiction and then there's sort of genre fiction, right? This is sort of right. a classic, like, you know, decades, centuries old distinction. And the literary fiction is to sort of say like, over here is where we're writing the real stuff. And over there is where where there's fantasy and escapism and blah, 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 whatever the sort of way you can put that down to make your trope yeah. feel like it's something truer or real. Yeah. But but like but actually like what I love is like oh like literary fiction this little is is this is a genre essentially of speculative fiction where we like imagine a suburban world that that is informed by this particular social structure. But from a historical perspective, if you just zoom out far enough, which doesn't have to be very far, 50 years, 100 years, mm -hmm. 500 years, you see that all of these cultural norms that most of us live in and swim in, uh, that we assume to be reality, are actually just things that were created by people who aren't alive anymore. And they've evolved and they've mutated yeah. and, and we live in them. But what I love about speculative fiction is that it actually like holds all of those possibilities object. And gives us space as readers, as thinkers, as feelers to kind of poke and prod reality a bit. And so, like, I'm a big believer, actually, that that fantasy and speculative fiction and science fiction, like that whole quote unquote subgenre is actually the biggest genre. That's actually the, the container around which, like, if we want to widen the aperture as much as we can, we have to work with these these imaginal possibilities or else we're going to keep writing ourselves into the same corner that that we find ourselves in which as as we said before the recording doesn't always look good <laughs> like the the, the view yeah. from here doesn't always look so good i wonder how that lands with you oh oh absolutely i completely agree you know fantasy is the original literature yeah. you look at yeah. I, I mean it and and it wouldn't necessarily have been considered fantasy it's dangerous even i think for a modern mindset and a modern Western mindset hmm. and a modern U.S. specific, you know, dominant culture mindset to hmm. say that is fantasy yeah. when it might be a real lived understanding of how the cosmology of the world works. Mm -hmm. So I don't mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. what people were thinking. I don't know what the author of Gilgamesh or the authors of Gilgamesh were thinking. I don't know what Homer was thinking or the whoever collated these stories was thinking. I can't, I can't know that, but I can know that 
these or the Mahabharata, you mm. know, they mm. Um, mm. Mm-hmm. with these stories go back all, I think, I think I'm safe to say all the earliest great pieces of literature that have survived and so much hasn't survived deal with our relationship with the cosmos. Um, Some people call it mythology, but it's just an understanding of the cosmos people. And they may have known that they were telling a story. My sister likes to, my sister's a medievalist and um, she likes it. She, she thinks that the people writing in the middle ages, when they told these stories that many of them knew that they were telling fabulisms, what they would have called fabulisms, I guess. Mm. Um, And, that it doesn't matter. I mean, these are stories that talk to people about what is I don't know, deepest in our core. What is the world? Who is yeah. the world? Yeah. How are we here? Why are we here? What does it mean? Who are those people over there? Why do why does the wind? I mean, everything. Everything. That's yeah. the original. Now, mm. I, mm. I mean, and I agree with you. The idea of literary fiction is really a 20th century. Mm-hmm. A 20th century, it's almost a contraction. And literary fiction as a genre is fine. It's excellent. It's great. Um, many fine works. It isn't the, but it isn't the direct route back to the Iliad, right? right. <laughs> yeah. it, it's one of the descendants yes. of the Iliad, let yes. us say. Yes. It's not the only or the main descendant of the Iliad. Yes. So that is for me. Um, why? Well, it's one of the reasons I write science fiction and fantasy, because I'm actually really interested in these huge questions about how we relate to the world, how we relate to other people. And, and to come back to what you were saying about history, this idea that how I think right now, and I think it's one of the great dangers of what is going on in modern times with that lack, especially in the United States, with that lack of teaching history. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's always living in the present, which on the one hand, philosophically, or you, you know, we need to live in the moment and not live in the future and the past all the time. Right. That's kind of a, an understood way of trying to be present. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's the, the flip side of that is this idea that if the present is all that exists for you, then you think that the present extends infinitely into the past, that my view extends infinitely into the past that boys wear blue and girls wear pink. That's how it's been for 10,000 years. (laughs) But of course, it's simply a modern phenomenon. It's a modern commercial phenomenon in the United States. Right. That even within like a lifetime has been flipped. Within a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I'm old enough that I can see the, the, the things I was told as a girl, how those, you know, what are girls, what are boys, right? And then those began to shift. And now you can see aspects of them coming back, even in many ways, um, more, more cruelly restrictive mm. Um, mm. in the modern times. Mm. I mean, mm. I mean, in today, in the present moment, right? But with no consciousness that historically... Yeah. Things are, you can't, there is no universal way of looking at people. And so that's why I love science fiction I and know. fantasy Ugh. because it's, it's open. It's so open. It's like, it, it's this idea you just said about one thing that's cooking in me around this idea of being in the present moment. There's a version of that that absences the past and sort of like turns the future into sort of could be anything, but, but to like, to be in the present 
as is in is in much a full awareness of all of the past that has allowed that present moment yeah. to be possible and and as much an yes. awareness of all of the the branches that that are possible as a result of that past like that kind of present moment awareness science fiction fantasy like that that is a a way of accessing that that is so feels so important right now when when we we are narrowing our understandings of what we're capable of and what our potentials are as a species. I absolutely agree. And of course, not all science fiction and fantasy has that, has that scope. Some of it has that same narrowness. It's like this. So we want to write about this, this constructed past that we believe how things were, and we're going to write it in the most rigid form. But that's always a form of stagnation. To mm. want to return mm. to the past is always a form of stagnation because you can't return to the past. Mm. It's impossible, mm. literally impossible. You can do it for a short time, but even what you're doing um, isn't the past. Mm -hmm. It's just your reconstruction of your mm. belief about what the past mm. is. Mm. And so for me as a writer, I'm always trying to deal with that kind of that churn that's going on. How do people, how do the characters in my book, how do they see their place in the world? How do they see who they are in terms of what came before them? Hmm. How do they hmm. see who they are in terms of the people they come into contact with hmm. or the other cultures? How do cultures connect with each other? Yeah. What do they see? I mean, to, I mean, how fascinating is it? It's like that place where the sea meets the shore. Mm. You can stand mm. on a beach and watch the waves come in. And each wave that comes in breaks differently. <laughs> it never repeats. So science fiction and fantasy in that sense mm. is infinite. Mm. Mm. It's only limited by what we bring to it. Mm. Yeah, and I would say of of the pieces I've read, I, I noticed that that insight or that wisdom present definitely in in Unconquerable Sun, uh, the sort of sense that there was some civilization that predated the one that the characters are living their lives out, and that that some of that is mysterious about what that civilization was, but that there's some opportunity to learn about it and be informed by it. So that's there, but especially in in Felian's journey and Servant Mage, the the way that she comes to know and reconnect to where she came from yeah. and how the people who still live there right now live and how she might find her way to that as even as others put her in certain categories or certain boxes about who they think, you know, she is and what power she has and what they expect of her and which, which side to fight on. And, and, and she sort of like finds that her personal history is kind of, both sides of the sort of good and evil, I'm putting air quotes around that fight, have actually like buried that much deeper, richer history. And, and part of the story is her yeah. finding her way to that, which is beautiful. And it makes me really sad to think how often we don't get the opportunity, us as living beings right now, to, to do that journey or to get connected to some of that. Um, you know, on a personal level, my mother is an immigrant. So she mm. came to this country at 21 mm. because she married my dad and my dad's grandparents were all immigrants from the same country, which is Denmark. They had all come over in like the 1890s, right? When that big wave, there was a big wave of Northern European immigrants at that time, especially from, well, a big wave, a small, a small wave um, of Scandinavian immigrants in the 1880s and the 1890s. And his so my dad's all four of his grandparents came over at that time 
Um, and they ended up by one means or another in us living in, in an area, a small town and then rural in an area in rural Oregon where there were a mm. number of Danish American families. Mm. So my dad grew up in a Danish American community. I mean, he went to Dane school once a week where they oh learned Danish things. And in addition, he mm. was mostly raised. He was an only child, mostly raised by his grandmother who um, never really spoke English well. So he was raised by a Danish speaking grandmother. Mm -hmm. And then after the war, World War One, um, he went back to Denmark to study for a year, met my mom, she came home. But what that means for me is that I grew up in an ethnic household. I grew up in a Danish American household. I didn't know that was strange at the time, mm -hmm. but I didn't grow up in kind of mainstream white American culture because we ate, we, we just had different ways we did things. We spoke a different language. We spoke a second language at home. And that has always given me this, this, split consciousness that, hmm. that there's other, there's, I, I mean, I think it's not that I would compare my journey to Felian. I don't write autobiographically at all. I'm not interested in that. My, my goal is to not be in my stories, right? I mean, I am always in my story. Yeah, I, like I bring a, my I, sensibility to it, yes, right? But yes. I'm not here to, for anything to be about me. I want to be in, as invisible as possible in the story. But, but I have that sensibility of that other that other place, that other identity, that really is a core for me. Mm, and that mm, combined mm. with my father um, being a history teacher, he taught mm. American history and later became an administrator in the early, when the community colleges were being built and, and huh. created in the United States in the 60s and 70s, um, the, a great way, an important, an important way to bring education to more people. Yeah. Yeah. in an affordable way and all kinds of education. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that sense, and, and, and actually you see that too in Servant Mage, because of course there's a whole subplot about teaching, right? Yes. Yeah. In that yeah. story. Yeah. So that's kind of my tribute to the educators. Uh, well, there's, yeah, a, yeah, that's there's a great, part there's of what a, that comes from. Yeah, there's a great scene where one of the other kind of, uh, mages and they're, and they're, they sort of have different elements, right. And which is yeah. another wonderful, kind of quote unquote, archetype trope, or trope, right? right? Yeah, yes. Yep. So you, you're playing with that and, and, uh, and Felian shares something about her understanding of her power or, or what she's capable of. And the mage is sort of like, you know, what are they teaching you at this school? You know, like, yeah. don't yeah. you see that you're being educated to, to, to be controlled? Don't you see? And like, we have to, ha we have to help you learn what you're really, who you really are and what you're really capable of. And, and the beauty of that moment is that, even in that moment, that other mage is projecting onto Felian, like yeah. who who I think you really are, which is yeah. which is this certain yeah. kind of mage. But but that 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 doorway that is open there leads her somewhere even more true and deeper. Which is, and I'm struck like as your father, so interesting to think about a a uh, Danish American teaching American history. And my in my intuition is that in a way, he might have held that with more fidelity and more authenticity than someone who's just purely American teaching American history, that that split consciousness, he must have held that too. And that ability to kind of bring that in some way. I don't know. What, how does that, how does that land with you? This I do think so, but I'm biased because I was really close to my dad. Yeah. He's, he's passed on now, but um, he, he was pretty, he struck me as someone who was very clear eyed 
about the past. Mm. He wasn't, he didn't, he's, my understanding of American history, I think is pretty clear in terms of the, the terrible parts, the good parts, you know, the bigotry, the racism, the genocide of the American yeah. Indians, the yeah. also, and the, the importance of the constitution for all its flaws. I mean, all of these things, the idea of the working class movements and um, there, there's just, there's so much <laughs> when, when history is told richly mm. and with mm. its full layers of all the complexity and nuance, it's so brilliant and it's so fascinating when it's told in a shallow way, it's like, it's cheating people. Yeah. of of richness yeah. it's like saying i can only it's it's not that salt in food is bad but if that's all you're ever allowed mm. there's like a whole world of mm. um mm. Mm. of flavor that you're not mm. you know i can only mm. have potatoes and salt right um that's you know i i to yeah. me history can be so yeah, rich. That, that that diet actually yeah. like that actually what's the what's that word when you're malnourished right like Yes. That if you've been fed a, a history that's 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 two dimensional, that's thin, that's not clear, that's not willing to look at at the beauty and the violence in all measures, then you're actually yeah. being malnourished, and and you might not even know it. That's you won't, a fan- you won't know it. That is a fantastic um, metaphor. No, or was it a simile? Did you use like? I don't remember. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Sure. But anyway, no. Analogy. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, let's go with analogy. Um, I, that's a fantastic analogy, actually. And actually, when I look at American culture today, I do see mm. malnourishment, mm. 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 which leads to, you know, sickliness, right? Or yeah. lack of yeah. robustness. Yes. And, and that's what, and again, that's what art and literature and all forms of art can do for us. They're what help create that stronger, healthier, mm. Um, mm. richer, more robust sense of the world. Yes, it's a I, nourishment. I think, yeah, and I felt nourished after reading reading your work. Oh. Like that's I'm, oh. now that I'm in touch with that that analogy. It's yes, there's a way in which I could hold your i could see your book was not only in conversation with the genre with the genres and with the tropes and but also in conversation with with um culture uh, like actual historical culture and politics and uh colonialism and uh like like the dialogue that's embedded in this really i mean i don't remember how many pages but like not a lot it's a really you know tight read there's so much available there uh that's really nourishing yeah, Servant Mage is um, a novella, actually. It's just under 40,000 words. So wow. it's, <laughs> thank you, first of all. Actually, to say that uh, art is nourishing is mm. Mm. Uh, a very powerful compliment. Um, and also, I think, really, really talks about why we need art. Yeah. Why we have to have art and why artists need to be able to write what's in them you know, not, not stick to some program that's given them from the outside. Mm, Shostakovich mm. aside, you know, mm, but even mm, he, even he mm, snuck, I'm a huge Shostakovich, Dmitry Shostakovich lover of his music, but, and, and there's a lot of discussion about, you know, how he was writing and what he had to do to be able to continue to compose because he was, you know, Stalin at one point censored him and 
you know, threatened to arrest him. And so then he had to write something that uh, write a symphony that was flattering to Stalin. But was there were there really hidden messages inside yeah. it? I mean, there's so much going on in his music where you feel like that tension of yeah. him being a composer in the Soviet Union and trying to survive, to stay alive. And at the same time, having this deep artistic sensibility that he needed mm. to express. Mm. That tension mm. is constant in his mm. music, mm. which is mm. I think one of the reasons I love it so much. And I, I wouldn't compare myself to him in that sense at all, because I don't feel like I have had to deal with those specific kinds of life or death tensions. Mm. Mm. Um, but definitely art as, I mean, I, I said that before, art as churn, you know, at, at that art at the shoreline where you're, you know, where you're standing and what's coming in and out. Mm. Um, mm. I there's think a reason, I mean, you're, you're, there's a reason why, Throughout history, um, dictators or tyrants who seek to claim power go after artists and go after not just artists. There are other people they go after, but art is incredibly threatening to yeah. a, a malnourished history that you're trying to feed people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's even that, like even the even the sort of way in which uh, an artist who successfully manages to create art that allows him to stay alive <laughs> with Stalin like breathing down his neck, even that art will it, like. There's no way, actually, I think, to remove if it's if it's made with that artistic integrity. There's no way to sort of remove the vitality of it. Even the even the hiddenness of it, even the absence of what he might otherwise yeah. have written, is present in a way because the context is so is so specific and so so driving. So it's like that. Even that tension and that pressure is going to produce something despite its desire to repress it. Absolutely. And the other interesting thing to me about thinking about Shostakovich specifically or people working under those conditions is, is that he, if he had lived at a time when that hadn't been true, it would have been different. What mm. he wrote would mm. have been different. Mm. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, horribly, maybe the greatness <laughs> of what he wrote wow. is that he mm. had to express through expressed through those pressures. Mm. I, I mm. don't know. I mean, mm. we'll never know. Right. Mm. But it, so in a way it's a portrait of how repressive the Soviet union was, mm. Mm. Um, but mm. yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to say, speaking of history, that unconquerable son um, is also a story about history. One of the, one of the kind of philosophical thematic elements I consciously used when I was writing or when I was developing that really huge far future world was this idea that what we know of Sumeria, we know from potsherds, right? And, mm. and a few, ta you know, scattered broken tablets. So when I talk about the broken archives, there's this sense that 3000 years ago, the people who live in this area of space came from what I never say is earth. Yeah. Because they don't know that word. Yes. They yes. call it the celestial empire. Yeah. But it's earth, which is obvious <laughs> because they use. So what do we know of Sumeria? We can name names that we've, you know, that we've decoded or translated. And we can have some archaeological ruins that we can make statements about. But what do we really know? I mean, it's limits. Our knowledge of the past is always mm. limited by mm 
the fact that we didn't live there and the fact that we, the farther back it goes, the less information we have to piece together clues. So we piece together clues anyway. Mm. And again, that gets back to what storytelling does. You know, I'm asking the reader to piece together clues based on the words I'm giving them to, to, to read, you know, and I can't, I can't know what they're going to think. I can only do my best to give them as close as possible to what's in my mind. Um, knowing that they're going to bring a different set of experiences. They're standing on a different shoreline, right? So <laughs> the water, they're going to see that water differently yeah. as it rolls in. As, as servant um, mage or, or uncomfortable sun kind of sun, rolls right. into them, right? Yeah. Right. And so that's, you know, but, but my goal with uncomfortable sun was to talk, was also to kind of have in the background, this idea that we don't, we, we don't know, we lose so much of history as yeah. time passes. And yeah. then we construct something out of it because we need to, what, no matter what, even if we say that we live in this universal time where the, you know, where everything was exactly as it was in our view of 1950s, leave it to beaver, right? That's the, the, our view of the past. And that extended back 10,000 years. That's still a construction, no matter what it is, the past is mm. a construction. Mm. Mm. We have more evidence or less evidence based on what's there, but yeah. we're, we're in the present. As you said, we're always living in the present and mm. in Unconquerable Sun, I wanted to deal with that in the sense that these people are living in the present and Sun is aware that she's living now in the present, but she's also aware of the weight of history and it matters to her as it did as it does to some people and not to others. Mm -hmm. Some people mm -hmm. are very aware of the weight of history. Others only care about the present moment that they are living in. Yeah. What was it? So, so you're not only inside of the story presencing this far distant uh, civilization that, that is ours in a way, right? Like in a way, it is even ours. Though, yeah. you know, like yeah. this, this moment that you, this present that you All and I live in is, yeah. is, in the deep past of uh, exactly. Sun's present. And so you're working with that, like that history, Sun's working with it. It pops up in artifacts and certain places and certain, and certain sort of old, um, you know, uh, archives, et cetera. Like it's there and you're just, it's like kind of pointing it and nudging it. But then also you've, um, you've attempted to work with our history like, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you, you've very explicitly, this is a sort of gender flipped Alex story of Alexander the great. And, and so you're also attempting to go back and piece things together and tell a story that mirrors the, the tale of a person who actually lived, who is also in a way, a sort of character in speculative fiction, because there have been so many stories yeah. and legends and perspectives about who he was and, and what kind of leader he was. So I'm just aware of like, you're like working with history yeah. a lot in this novel. And what was that like for you as an artist to engage with that so fully? I mean, I always work with history a lot. I wrote a seven volume epic fantasy series called Crown of Stars, kind of mm -hmm. from 1997 to 2005, I think. And it's really deeply, deeply embedded in medieval Europe. Mm. And I read so much history. I read original sources translated into English. I read so many books about it. I love history. And I love working with history in my novels. And I also love the fact that the more you read, the more you discover that this version of history that we're kind of taught, that we see in Hollywood or that we're kind of taught is the shallow um, version 
and these expectations are really, it's really um, not what happened. Yeah. Even if you go, if you go back at all to see what was going on, it's just, uh, we are, you know, I already, I'm repeating myself now. It's just so much more. Mm. Mm. It, and Alexander is such a fascinating character. I have to, I have to pause here and say that um, I didn't name one of my children after Alexander. So, oh my God, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Isn't that so funny? Fun. I, yeah. I have a, my eldest is my eldest um, child, and then I have twin boys, and um, I knew it was twins before they were born. So. <laughs> This is really, if you know the history of Alexander well, you know that one of the things about Alexander is he led from the front always. And if there was any hesitation, he would just charge right out in the front. Mm -hmm. It was part mm -hmm. of it was the way leadership mm -hmm. worked at that mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. um, you, you didn't general from the back. You didn't command from the back. You had to command from the front. Having the, To be a king, you had to have the physical courage to fight in battle and be seen by your troops fighting in battle. That was just part of it. Mm. Um, and, of course, that has changed across time and in different places. But Sun but, definitely embodies that. I mean, that's... Uh, well, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. but um, so to go back to the twins. So the agreement was is that the first twin through the breach would be Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how yeah the, uh, anyway so I love that amusingly but, enough he's now in the navy but um uh, anyway uh, to come back to the alexander thing so alexander himself spawned across for two thousand years alexander as has been a font of story mm -hmm. in the middle ages we talk a lot about the arthur, arthur stories when we think about the european middle ages we we think about, oh, King Arthur this, King Arthur that, Lancelot, Guinevere, you know, there were the French versions and the other versions. Well, during the Middle Ages, the most popular um, romance, and by romance, I mean story cycle, not mm. romances in love story, which yeah. is a modern genre yeah. category. The most popular, most read of these, you know, multiple, multiple threads and stories and versions was the Alexander romance. Wow. It's it's all over. It's all over Europe. It there's versions in what's Ethiopia. The, what's the sort of there's, rough gap of time, but like between well, from his life and the Middle Ages. Like, I mean, that's a big. It's a long time. Well, the Romans were obsessed with Alexander, hmm. and so there's at least the the four best known ancient sources. So, first of all, there were a lot of histories written about Ale oh don't you know what now you're headed now i'm headed down the alexander rabbit hole so i apologize in advance. <laughs> well i'm i'm i the the reason i wanted to take us down this rabbit hole is because i like already even if we just stopped here which i don't want us to i'm already getting in touch with the like vastness you've yeah. you've picked one human being from history a, a, an understandably yeah. very remarkable one a very well-remembered one although maybe well-remembered isn't the quite phrasing but uh an, an in the consciousness human being yeah. and it's like yeah. how the f do you turn that into a book it's sort of my like it's sort of my question like from a craft artist perspective but i also want to go down the rabbit hole with you about like i didn't know this that the romans were obsessed i didn't know that there were four ancient sort of sources of this history so yeah give us a little flavor of I'll, I'll do this i'll do this as quickly as succinctly as possible and given that i tend to write really long books good luck everybody <laughs> listening. um so many so there were histories and accounts and memoirs written by people who were there. 
The Romans had access to those. Most of those, every one of the direct sources is now lost as a complete manuscript. Mm. Um, and we only, we know about them because of the references of Arian, Plutarch, Diodorus, and the Justin who wrote from some other, who did a redaction of some other source. Um, and so these are all from the early empire, I hmm. believe. I'm pretty sure. Um, I'm bad at dates. Uh, <laughs> and and yeah, the Romans loved Alexander. And so they kind of like beefed him up from this and they wrote their own versions ah. of his story. And it's important to note here, given that I'm writing an Alexander the Great story as part of this 2000 year tradition. I'm I'm just I'm just one of many. This is yeah, just part of the part of what we call the Alexander romance. Mm. Um, and mm. and I I you know as so I'm 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 working as part of this transition uh, part of this tradition. I used specifically mostly Arian who's who wrote the campaign of Alexander based in large part on the accounts of two different people, one Aristobulus, I think, but the other one is Ptolemy and Ptolemy is one of Alexander's inner circle. And the thing about Ptolemy that's so interesting is you may have heard of the Ptolemaic dynasty. So mm -hmm. after Alexander's death, his commanders divided up the empire and then fought for 30 years over it. Um, mm -hmm. It's as one does. Um, and Ptolemy was a smart guy. And he said, oh, when, when, when they divided up, he goes, oh, I'll just go over here to Egypt. Nobody wants that. Well, Egypt was the <laughs> breadbasket of the Mediterranean at that time. And it also wasn't in the path of, so most of the fighting happened, as it still does, in the Levant, you know, across Turkey and to Greece. Mm -hmm. Egypt really didn't have any wars on its soil mm -hmm. for a long time. And Ptolemy made him, as they did, um, he made himself king. And then when he was old, he wrote a memoir, which I am absolutely sure was as self-serving as you can imagine <laughs> such a memoir would be. Yes. Um, and of course, all his descendant kings are named Ptolemy. It was just the Ptolemy. That's why it's called the Ptolemaic dynasty. They were all Ptolemy all the way down. Ptolemy's all the way down. It's Ptolemy's all the way down. <laughs> Ptolemy's all the way down. Um, they also, by the way, this is Cleopatra, is the last king and pharaoh of the Ptolemaic dynasty. And while, oh, don't get me started on the Cleopatra thing. While we think of Cleopatra as an anomaly, in fact, she wasn't because the Ptolemies had ruling queens mm, and, mm, and um, mm. women who were important in the rule of, throughout. Mm. Um, anyway, that's, mm. but what matters to this is that Ptolemy wrote a memoir. And of course I couldn't, and that's, I don't like to talk about analogs, but I actually am following the Alexander history pretty closely. I, I, I'm creating variations on it. Um, yeah. But it's but if you wanted if a person wanted to outline it, you could see the analogies to the people who really lived um, or aspects of them that I use. Anyway, mm. the Persephone mm. character mm. speaks in first person because She's telling you the story she wants you to hear. Mm. She's mm. the Ptolemy analog. She's the Ptolemy, okay. She's the yeah. Ptolemy. So it's, I don't, I never say this, and I hope by the end of, anyway, we'll see how this goes. Anyway, the important thing about Persephone is, is that there's a reason hers is in first person. Mm. Mm. You only hear what she wants to tell you. Mm. 
And and that's because from your ability to engage with the history, you only yeah. heard what to- uh, Ptolemy wanted to tell you. So it's like, okay, right. I need I need that analog right. in this retelling because it's just part of the that's part to of what me, we have. Part of what well, and because Arian, who's the best known, his campaign of Alexander is probably the best known version of the Alexander history, what we think of as the actual history of Alexander, what really happened, which who knows, right? I'm I'm sure many of the things we know did happen, but his version of it, Arian's version of it is based on, I think Aristobulus, um, and whose work is basically lost, um, Mm. except for any reference he might make to it. But he often uses, and I'm using what Ptolemy said, because of course, as a king, why would he lie, right? He actually says that, Arian actually says that, which I laugh every time I read that. <laughs> why would he lie? As a person trying to maintain power, why would he lie? <laughs> yeah, and, and justify everything he had ever done to become, you know, wow. the king and pharaoh wow. of Egypt and pass it on, create his own dynasty. Anyway, um, but that's I. It, it was interesting writing. It has. I'm still writing it. Uh, the second yeah. book is coming out next year, and. Um, because I am trying to follow the history, mm. but at the same time, the history can't be one-to-one. So while there are some characters like Sun, who is the Alexander analog, and Hetty, who is the Hephaestian analog, and you know Joa and, and Irene, who are the Olympias and Philip analogs, mm. they're, they're swapped, obviously. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Irene is Philip, um, and... and uh, Joa is Olympias, Alexander's mother. I mean, so they're, but of course they're not exactly them either, right? And then it goes down, but I had like a plot reference. So the, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it. I know, it's like, like, wow, this this, is. Yeah, I had this thing. My brain is filled with many layers. Um, And I don't really understand my brain. Um, (laughs) But uh, and as an aside, I want to say that one of the reasons I wrote Servant Mage was just to write a complete story in a short. Just to like palate set, cleanse. Just to, yeah, <laughs> I just had to see if I could do it because I tend to write really yeah. long. I mean, Unconquerable Sun is by no means my longest book. It's probably in the mid range, maybe wow. a little shorter than most. Wow. Um, but I I wanted to take that larger sense of the world mm. 4,000, three or 4,000 years from now. Um. And I wanted to take the setting, which is you have the small, scrappy Macedonians of them. That's, you know, and the the Greeks who were the great um, Western power kind of of their time. And then the Persian Empire, which was the great world empire of its time. They were the powerhouse. They were rich. They had a huge land based empire that um, included many different ethnic groups Mm -hmm. and um, Mm -hmm. former smaller nations that they had conquered and incorporated. And so I have that dynamic. I use that dynamic by, but I had to create, I didn't, I didn't want Persians, Greeks and Macedonians. I had to create each one to have the elements that were most important to Mm. me, the, Mm. the, the rich empire, it's the Mm. fiend and the, The and then, yeah, but, but then I use like kind of the main, like there's, there's, there's three major battles in the Alexander story. And one of them happens in book one. And then there's many lesser battles. And those happen in various, those happen kind of more or less when they happened in the history. But I've tangled them up with this world creation set in this far future, 
which has uses scraps, this, the potsherds of history, right, yeah. to construct yeah. its own understanding of culture. And where I pull naming traditions in from all over, because that's what happens. Mm. You know, mm. we, we that's are actually that's actually like that's our civilization right now, in a way, is what I'm hearing you say that like we have essentially pulled in or left out, depending on who you talk to and, and where you stand, like to create this construct of our current moment in in time yeah. that is actually yeah. Yeah. drawn from a tapestry that's much richer and also much more frayed and complex than than the sort of history books might lead you to believe. Sounds well, like. good history books yeah. are complicated, yeah. even when well-written. Um, well, I'm I, what I'm in touch with right now is that, like that I, as someone who is interested in this stuff, I, and still I'm to, to have the chance to talk to you about the process uh, that you have gone through to produce a really original work of fiction that is also informed by the science fiction genre and that lineage, and also informed by the sort of romances and histories of one of the most well-known sort of emperors and conquerors and, and, our, and our known histories, like to produce what you call like one of your shorter books, which is like that, even that I'm like, wow, like that distillation that I'm in touch with, it feels like a reduction. Like you've just been cooking and cooking and yeah. reducing, reducing. And, and, and what you, what you've come out with is a really readable, enjoyable book that also, it sounds like for anyone who wanted to could pull on any one of these threads and go down an unbelievable rabbit hole of history or technology or whatever, whatever it is they wanted to, to dig up. How did, yeah, is that's, that... that's, yeah, absolutely. And also there's a lot of Easter eggs in the book because I was also, besides everything else, I also wanted to, this is space opera. And for me, space opera, I want to say it needs to be fun. And I don't mean <laughs> fun in a dismissive way. I mean, you need to be like, it's like, skating right you know you're moving and you're like it's exhilarating and it's also operatic it's a little bigger than life right yes. and i wanted to have those elements as well so there's also things there's also like easter eggs in there that i hope people will see and go and find funny or find delightful um, there's a lot of delight yeah maybe well. that's one thing we haven't that i want to celebrate is that like in addition to this the like sort of heft and weight of the history that you're you're holding and carrying and pouring into this book. There's also a lot of laughter and delight and silliness and sort of like, uh, you know, like it's fun to imagine if sun is the analog for Alexander, it's fun to imagine Alexander kind of being a little bit lovelorn for one of his closest companions and being a little bit like flushed well, and, and well, overwhelmed. I mean, this right? is, that is all historical. Yeah. And it's, it's but it's just so, historical. it's so a lot, yeah. like you bring it yeah. to life and it's like, oh yeah, of yeah. course, like Alexander was, essentially at one point a teenager or a young you know yeah. a young person who Literally was person. hormones are raging and and you know like love and lust and and sort of status and all of the kind of like things that that you play with in this world you've built are so uh fun <laughs> they're just really it's really fun to 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 bring that humanity to this larger than life historical figure that that everyone's yeah. heard the name of but very few maybe know actually know much about I think, yeah, because I think that it's hard. One of the things I find most intriguing is that I think it's hard. We can never know who Alexander really was. We can never be inside his head. 
and what led him to do what he did, which was at the time pretty astonishing and and also pretty awful. A lot of people I, died. I, I want to ask a lot you about of people that in a died. Yeah. yeah. Um, and to, but at the same time, he was human, just like us, mm. just like all of us are. Mm. So I think it's important always to bear that in mind with characters and to try to, we can make them larger than life and also ground them. Mm. Mm. In, in, and, and I have to say here real quickly, I have written a lot. Um, I've written, I think, 30 novels now. And one of the things I'm doing with, with Sun in the Alexander story is, and this is tricky, um, I seeing a putting a woman in the role of a truly charismatic, successful military leader is rare, vanishingly rare mm. um, as a, it's not even a trope. There's badass women and there's, you know, the Queen Elizabeths and, mm. uh, you know, mm. and all these, uh, both Queen Elizabeths, you know, and this, but, but that kind of Alexander character has most, I would say almost entirely been reserved for men. And I wanted to write that specifically on purpose Mm. to flip that, to put that out there. But I also have to say that it's important to me because of my understanding of history and in the way in which the history of women's lives has been elided and ignored and mm -hmm. swept under the rug and said it is not important and, and erased. You know, women have done all these amazing things and then they say, oh, no, they just were always, you know, they never they never did anything. Right. Which isn't even true. But but the flip side of that is that I have also written stories, for example, in my Crossroads trilogy, which the one that starts with Spirit Gate, which is set in a complete secondary world. It's not an Earth analog in any way. Um, but the main character in that, and she's one of many characters, I deliberately wrote her to be a, a young woman who completely lives in a what I'll call a fairly traditional woman of what we think of as the traditional woman's life what mm. what she's mm. what she's interested in what she does um her part you know she never picks up a sword and fights in other words it's it's not feminist if women only get to be important if they're doing male things mm. it's mm. only it's, mm. to me to me that's not a feminist mm. way of looking at women's mm. lives mm. um and, and I call traditionally male and female things which yeah. have shifted a lot in our yeah. lifetimes. Right? That word tradition, um, like, yeah, 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 I, yeah. I hear I mean, the air quotes things. around it. Yeah, right? the air quotes yeah. around it. Um, yeah. But I also, so with this character, Mai, in, in Crossroads, I also wanted to show how vital um, women's lives were mm. and how mm. much more they were than the mm. way it's often taught in history or mm. expressed in in mm. history or in literature, you know, mm. where I grew up reading books where the women could be love interests, mothers, caretakers, and, you know, dead prostitutes, right? <laughs> um, and that was commonplace in fantasy when I grew mm. up. It was just like, well, women didn't do anything, which isn't even true. So, so for me, this range of import is important. So what I did with Sun isn't that I did that. I have to, I feel like I have to say this. I didn't make, I didn't, right son, because I think that's the only way to show a woman in an important role. I wrote it because I had a specific goal with mm. creating this charismatic leader. 
Mm. We never doubt mm. that Alexander, that an Alexander can appear. Mm. But we doubt that a son could appear. Mm. Mm. If you see what mm. I mean, even mm. in the society of unconquerable son, even in the society of Caonia, which mm. is very gender neutral, gender is not the, I don't know, the valence, the gender is not the thing that people care about. Yeah, yeah. It, it, they're a, not it, nearly as obsessed with it as, as we are. Well, in this it's moment. not it's not an important way by which yeah. they divide society. Yeah. You know, and, and it's a choice for societies to do that. Yeah. Um, so that was that's how I wrote that. But anyway, I needed to put that out there so that people because the character Mai is equally important in her own way in that other trilogy in me expressing about what I want to say about the place for women and for really any marginalized people who in the past have been left out of stories. And again, we get back to this idea of who mattered in the past. I mean, that's a decision we're making in the present, right? Yes. Yeah. And every time we look back. So it's uh, yeah, we're constantly a, making these editorial yeah. decisions. Um, and, and I, I'm, Oh gosh, sorry. This is, this is great. Sorry. I'm Actually, really, this yeah, is awesome. No. So this is the other thing. I've been publishing since 1988, and of course, I've been writing since longer than that. But this is the other thing. Because I've had, I have been fortunate enough to have this long period of time, this lifelong journey, I have been able to write so many different things from so many different angles, explore down so many paths mm. and roads, mm. that it wasn't like I just wrote one, you know, I just wrote three novels and that's like the end of it. But it's that I've been able to move across so many, you know, through the funny stuff, you know, like I am a handsome man, Apollo Crow is a short story is it's funny, right? It's really funny. Yeah. It's yeah, really entertaining it's, and fun. It's um, which reflects a little bit about the universe that comes from the spirit Walker universe again, which is told the, those three novels, cold magic, cold fire and cold steel are told from the point of view of a character who appears as a minor character, in the Apollo, in the Apollo yeah, Pro story. Yeah. Um, and it's told first person and it's funny, but it's also big. It's set in a kind of alternate history, Napoleonic era. So it's also got ser very serious underpinnings, but it's also funny as opposed to crossroads may have funny moments, but it's a very serious, it gets very dark mm. um, because I'm kind mm. of talking about, that's a book where I'm kind of talking about women and how women have been treated in fantasy. I mean, mm. the story is bigger than that. And it's also about empire. And it's also about who is really the hero. Uh, so many things. But anyway, I've had the chance to do all these different things. Not just one story. Yeah. I haven't had to tell just one story. I've yeah. had the chance to tell multiple stories. And Sun is just my latest thing I'm investigating. Mm. Mm. You know, I, I love that. It, it just, it's, yeah, it's. I'm so grateful that I've had this chance. Gosh, you just, I, I feel like in, you've evoked like 10 things I want to talk to you about. And we have seven minutes left. Okay. All right. <laughs> so let me just take a like breath and see what I want to mirror back. And then maybe I'll give you the, the last word. <laughs> but the thing, the thing I want to, the one thing, one thing I want to mirror back amidst much of what's so rich in there is the way in which I hear you speaking to both the this maybe this kind of connects to where we started the the both the the capacity of fiction to help us see truths that are um, our particular narrow cultural story, which is in itself a kind of fiction, tries either doesn't know about or ignores or actively tries to repress. So it's this kind of 
truth seeing through uh through yeah. imagination right this kind of truth seeing that you like looks that someone like sun could be true and that may feel that may feel feminist or that may feel you know edgy or progressive i'm putting a lot of air quotes here like it may feel however you want to politicize that but but actually if we really look at history someone like sun could be true and i want to look at that but also someone like may is and could be true and and what i mean there is that i rather than rather than look at that that archetype of a of a more feminine a more kind of traditional kind of caretaking, housekeeping, whatever that is. And I haven't read the book, so I'm sort of generalizing here, but, but that actually that life is valuable and worthy too. And that, that we do ourselves a disservice to assume that it was nothing or less than that. We could actually go closer to, and Ursula Le Guin does this beautifully. Like we can go closer to the quote unquote mundane of life and see how beautiful it is. And that that's worthy too. So you're both like pushing what we know to be true and also deepening what we assume to be uh, simple, simplistic or, or narrow. And I just like that, that to be able to see your body of work as a ongoing conversation with these cultural norms and these histories and these stories we all keep telling ourselves about who we are is uh, gosh, what a life. That's so, so cool. Yeah. So I want to celebrate that. Thank you. I, and actually what I want to add about the, about the references that we've both made to Mai is that really the most important thing about her story is that she's the most important character in the book and that mm. many of the things that mm. are denigrated and dismissed or put on a pedestal about so-called traditional feminine life or whatever are crucial mm. to the mm. well-being of humanity, yes, are crucial yes. to our ability to live that we could not live without those things and that the success of what happens of those who succeed in the book. And I don't want to give anything away about it because I know it's so tricky. <laughs> it's, oh no, this is a book about subvert. This is a major trope subversion book. Well, okay. it's a trilogy and it's really long um, <laughs> um, that the success is due to the mm. lives that we so often ignore mm. or Mm. Say are mm. unworthy of narrative. And that, of course, is us. Us, I put that in quotes. Um, that, of course, is itself a narrative. I mean, who is worthy? Who is unworthy of narrative? Everyone is worthy of narrative. Mm. If we see them that way. Mm. 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 Oh, yeah. Wow. This feels like a really potent place to end. And it also feels like a potent beginning to a lot of other conversations that we don't have time for. But um just want to say thanks, Kate, for um, spending time with me, for em- modeling and embodying what I, a belief I held before we met. And now I'm like being reaffirmed being with you that that fiction can be an investigation into some of the deepest truths about who we are and what we're capable of and what potentials we have and that it's a powerful way to honor humanity in all of its expressions and uh i just it's you're you, in the three pieces i've read you do that like this is you do that it's like a fractal like you can in the one book unconquerable sun you're doing all of these things and then across your 30 books i hear you doing these things and it's really special so thank you for that thank you andy thank you for bringing um bringing this sense of, I don't know, the breadth and the 
the breadth and the depth. I mean, and I really appreciate you bringing mm. that to mm. this interview and to all your interviews. Mm. Mm. Amazing. Uh, thank you. I received that. And uh, this is why, this is why, like, this is the coolest well, right? thing ever that I get to do this. <laughs> right, so. right. Every time I do my narrative world things, I, at, at the end of it, I'm like, wow, I just got to talk to this amazing person for yeah. an hour, right? Yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, it's the connection though, right? This is what art is. This is what humanity is. It's the connections we create. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your books are, that's the coolest thing about literature and all its forms. It's like that someone hearing this is going to go read one of your books and, and they'll never meet you and you'll never meet them, but there's a meeting that still happens there. Yeah. And someone maybe, you know, maybe a hundred years from now might read one of those books and, and, or even a thousand years from now, maybe. Right. Like, and there's this wonderful way in which the act of creation allows something, allows that connection to, to expand and enlarge our present moment. And, and it, so it really does. When I was doing research for Crown of Stars, I kept coming back to a 10th century chronicler named Vidukin de Corve, who wrote a chronicle of the life of Otto the Great, um, which I used for a lot. Um, it's not really an analog a story in the same way that the Sun books are an anal more of an analog of the Alexander of Alexander the Great's life, but I felt like I was sitting next to him ah, and that he yeah. was speaking to me. Yeah. yeah. And it was just, you know, there he was. He had written those words. He had processed those and it they spoke to me across a thousand years. <sighs> How amazing is that? <laughs> so cool. Wow. So if anyone listening in wants to kind of um, speak with you and in your work in some way or, or hear it, what, what's the best place for them to go check out what you're doing, your books, your, your, your podcast, the stuff that's happening? I am on Twitter and I have a pretty open Twitter feed. In other words, I tend to respond to people. Um, I'm there as Kate Elliott SFF. That's science fiction fantasy, just the three letters. I have a website, kateelliot.com, which I'm sure is not up to date. I have a <laughs> blog called I Make Up Worlds, mm. which is also not up to date. On either of those, you can find a link to my newsletter, which is very occasional and really is mostly just news. You know, everyone will say, oh, hey, this is coming out or here's my new. I have a cover reveal coming up for a short novel coming out next January. That's my wow. first contemporary fantasy. Um, very excited about that. Yeah. Um, and what else? Um, and I do have the Narrative Worlds podcast, which you can find on the SIFWA, S-F-W-A YouTube channel. There should be two seasons of it on there now. And it's just me talking to other writers. Uh, me in a discussion with another writer yeah. about uh, the specific topic of the month. I can't wait and to I, go down that rabbit hole. Oh, that, oh, these people are so amazing. I love people. <laughs> Me too. I mean, not all people, I grant you, but, <laughs> but mostly, yeah. As, as a species, we're pretty interesting creatures. That's uh, sure. we, are, we are, as Alan Cole, now deceased, once said to me, people are just so damned interesting, aren't they? <laughs> well, Kate, what a treat. Um, thank you for taking this time. Congrats on the new novel coming out. Um, congrats on all the amazing work that you've produced. It's uh, it's definitely nourished my life over the past few months, and, and I feel really lucky that I get to add this conversation to the, that set of experiences. So thanks very thank much. You. Thank you, Andy. All right, and thanks everyone for listening. 
Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua, and audio editing and engineering services from Jim Serqua at Sump Pump Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.